Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. This is session number 277. And tonight, the wolves close in and actually attack. Well, more than one of them attacks. Um, last time, we had the uh, the the Captain Warg uh, shot and killed by Legolas, and we were looking at the way in which that gets presented and how we get put sort of implicitly into the into the position of the inexperienced hobbits. And tonight, we will see what happens when the attack begins again in earnest. First, some quick announcements. We are in October now, and so looking ahead at the Signum calendar for October, there are a couple things I wanted to draw to your attention. First, we have two moots coming up soon. Next weekend, not this weekend, but next weekend on the 14th of October is Middle Moot in Waterloo, Iowa. Our fourth Middle Moot in Waterloo, Iowa, I believe. Our seventh Middle Moot ever. Middle Moot being our most venerable of regional moots. It was the first regional moot there was. Um, so um, i always glad to get back to Iowa for Middle Moot. Um, and then uh, uh, the next weekend, on the 21st of October, here in New Hampshire, uh, at the premises of Studio Labs, uh, in the very room where Rings and Realms was filmed, uh, we will be having New England moot. Um, and that is always a lot of fun, not to mention, of course, that mid-October is just a beautiful time to visit New Hampshire, if you haven't. Um, but um, anyway, so those two moots are happening on the 14th and 21st, respectively, of October. And then on the uh, 28th of October, we're having a special online event, uh, which is the Fall Space Showcase. Um, so if you've been curious about what's going on in space and what uh, kinds of topics we cover and what space classes are like, we're going to do... We did this uh, a spring showcase back in May, uh, which went really, really well, was very well attended, and a lot of people really enjoyed that. So we're doing it again for the fall here at the end of October, on October 28th. Um, a, uh, a, a long day of showcasing our space program and our space preceptors and uh, the wonderful uh, teaching and discussions uh, that go on there in our space program. So um, I wanted to... Uh, uh, make sure to draw that to your attention, too, on the 28th of October. All right. Well, let us get back to the text here. So you will remember that at the very end of the last passage, um, which in that sort of stream of consciousness description of relatively disjointed sensory perceptions, right? Um, the, uh, the, the, the eyes, the gleaming eyes that were surrounding the hill were extinguished. And then there was silence. Um, and so it sounded as if the wolves had gone away. Or at least, um, uh, at least, sort of gone away, or looked like they had gone away. Um, here's, of course, what happens in the next paragraph. The night was old, and westward the waning moon was setting, gleaming fitfully through the breaking clouds. Suddenly, Frodo started from sleep. Without warning, a storm of howls broke out, fierce and wild, all about the camp. A great host of wargs had gathered silently and was now attacking from every side at once. "'Fling fuel on the fire!' cried Gandalf to the hobbits. "'Draw your blades and stand back to back!' In the leaping light, as the fresh wood blazed up, Frodo saw many grey shapes spring over the ring of stones. More and more followed. Through the throat of one huge leader, Aragorn passed his sword with a thrust, and with a great sweep Boromir hewed the head off another. 
Beside them, Gimli stood with his stout legs apart, wielding his dwarf axe. The bow of Legolas was singing. All right. So, um, I love the alliteration in this passage, right? Of course, the heart of the alliterative, of this alliterative passage is Gandalf's words, right? Showing that when Gandalf is really under pressure, right, in times of crisis and emergency, uh, Gandalf is more alliterative than usual, right? I mean, fling fuel on the fire is about as egregiously alliterative a sentence as you will find in the Lord of the Rings, right? Um, fling fuel on the fire um, is, it, that's over the top alliteration. Literally every noun, you know, th three of the five words, you know, all of the major words, the nouns and verbs of the sentence all alliterate. And the fact that they alliterate not only on a very, um, very audible fricative like F, um, but again, it, you know, F is, I mean, it's a sufficiently unusual, unusual sound that you, it really jumps out at you, right? Um, uh, fling fuel on the fire. When you add it, <clears throat> uh, when you add to the fact, uh, when you, sorry, when you add to that, the fact that the verb fling is, um, it's a perfectly apt verb, um, you know, to toss something quickly and carelessly, right? Um, it's not that it's a strange word to use, but it isn't like the first word under any other circumstances that you would use, right? Um, even fuel. Anyway, the point is fling fuel on the fire goes kind of out of its way to alliterate with the word fire. Um, <laughs> Arden Crayon says, contribute coal to the conflagration. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and then exactly, April, once you notice that, it's, you know, once you hear that and that alliteration, I mean, no matter how insensitive you may be to this kind of thing, like you might not have a, a strong ear for, um, for alliteration um, or, you know, this kind of, uh, this kind of, 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 of you know, oral play um, in words. But no matter how, you know, tone deaf you may normally be, it's hard to miss, even with your eyes, the alliteration of fling fuel on the fire. Um, but, um, uh, but once you see that, you then, it's then hard to miss draw your blades and stand back to back, right? We get three B's after the three F's um, in uh, uh, in the, the first part of his statement. So both halves of his speech um, contain the same alliterative pattern. His speech begins and ends with these three, um, three rapidly repeated strong, initial alliterations. Um, yeah. Um, but of course, as we see, although that's the most apparent, again, I mean, I would be surprised if too many people, they might not think about it much, they might not think much of it, but I, I can't think there are very many people who don't notice at all that fling fuel on the fire is alliterative. Um, but 
many of you were hearing it through the whole rest of the description as well, right? In fact, it isn't just the kind of... Think about the sort of alliterative texturing that we were looking at back in those Karathras descriptions, right? Where you get a couple sounds kind of repeated, not only just in the initial, um, you know, at the beginning of words, um, but even in the middle or even in the ends of words, um, and uh, the way that that kind of goes through and, and will stretch from sentence to sentence and stuff. Notice that the pattern is a little bit different here. I'll read the first paragraph again and, and think again about the, the not just the fact that there is alliteration, but the patterns of the alliteration. The night was old and westward the waning moon was setting, gleaming fitfully through the breaking clouds. Suddenly Frodo started from sleep. Without warning, a storm of howls broke out fierce and wild all about the camp. A great host of wargs had gathered silently and was now attacking them from every side at once. Fling fuel on the fire, cried Gandalf to the hobbits. Draw your blades and stand back to back. In the leaping light, as the fresh wood blazed up, Frodo saw many great shapes spring over the ring of stones. More and more followed. Through the throat of one huge leader, Aragorn passed his sword with a thrust. With a great sweep, Boromir hewed the head off another. Beside them, Gimli stood with his stout legs apart, wielding his dwarf axe. The bow of Legolas was singing. Okay. Um, so, a couple different things, right? One thing that really strikes me um, is the way we get pairings close together. We weren't getting that many of those kinds of, at least I didn't think we were, in the earlier passages. Things like Westward the Waning Moon. Um, Westward the Waning. The, those two W's right next to each other, right near the beginning. And then, without warning, in the next sentence. Right? Um, and, uh, and then, of course, we get Gandalf's statement. And then we get the leaping light. In the leaping light. Again, back-to-back -back words like that. More and more. It's just a repetition, but again, in the context, um, even more than the repetition of the word, the, 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 the alliteration there, more and more, just like westward the waning and without warning and leaping light, more and more, and then through the throat. The fact that THR is, you know, that a consonantal combination like that is being alliterated, and it then it gets cemented at the end with thrust. Exactly, Bob. At the end, we get through the throat at the beginning and then thrust at the end. Um, and then hewed the head, right? Boromir hewed the head as well. Um, uh, yes, good. Gimli stood with his stout legs apart. Stood and stout again. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so, and once more, I would point out here, in addition to the fact that the alliteration is more audible, that is, it's it's more insistent. I mean, I don't know about you, but I read those Karathras passages dozens and dozens of times in my life before noticing the alliterative patterns, you know, the alliterative texturing that we were looking at the last, this last time, you know, when we went through it, um, that had never struck me before at all, because although it's present and once you, 
once you notice it and you begin to kind of tune your ear to it, you can hear it and it, it becomes very clear. Um, but here it is extremely, um, uh, uh, it's extremely insistent again, especially with the way that we keep getting it in those, uh, consecutive words or words separated by only a single syllable, westward, the waning without warning, leaping light more and more, uh, through the throat, um, uh, hewed the head. I get you. You just you can't help but hear it. It's it, it really forces itself upon you, and I would add that um, in addition to just kind of being more forceful in that way, another another way of describing its forcefulness is the way in which Tolkien seems to be going out of his way to emphasize it. I already mentioned fling fuel, right? Um, uh, fling fuel on the fire is an strikes me as, I mean, it's a fun way to say that. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that phrasing. It's delightful, especially with the alliteration. It's just not the words you would normally use, like the natural, you know, throw wood on the fire or throw logs on the fire or something like that, right? I mean, fling, neither fling nor fuel are the sort of automatic, natural, intuitive words that you would, that you would use there normally, right? Um, Again, there's nothing wrong with it. It just it's it hints that he's leaning into the alliteration heavily here, um, and I would say the same thing. Um, the same thing of some of his later sentences. Through the throat of one huge leader, Aragorn passed his sword with a thrust. That's a really windy way to say that, right? I mean. Um, Aragorn thrust his sword through the throat of one huge leader. I mean, it's just the, the, the whole syntactic construction of that sentence. Through the throat of one huge leader, Aragorn passed his sword with a thrust. I remember even as a kid um, he hearing this sentence and thinking that that expression, Aragorn passed his sword through the throat of one huge leader, the, the phrase passed his sword always struck me as odd. I was like, well, that, I mean, like, I get what they're describing, and that's, it sounds cool, but that's a weird way to say that, right? I mean, I, rem I remember thinking that that was a weird way to say that, you know, from from, from very early days. Um, notice the way, the, like, the way, I think if, if you turn that around and make it more direct, right, um, Aragorn thrust, the th thrust his sword through the throat of one huge leader. It's just, a slightly less sort of, um, um, you know, uh, Dagobah syntax for that sentence, right? Um, and um, my way of, you know, condensing it or rephrasing it in a way which feels more natural to normal English cadences still even retains all the alliteration, like all three of the THRs are all still there, right? Um, uh, but, um, but notice what it doesn't have. You know, if you say Aragorn thrust his sword through the throat, um, what it lacks is the rhythm. Clearly, Tolkien wanted to start with a pairing through the throat and then to end with thrust so that the entire clause 
is framed by the alliteration. Through the throat of one huge leader, Aragorn passed his sword with a thrust. Right? The, um, it's the the way that 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 third alliteration there. Um, again, the first two draw your attention so that you can if if it just had like throat and thrust, for instance, uh, or even just through. Right? If you said through the neck. Right, he said, through the neck of one huge leader, Aragorn passed his sword with a thrust. You would still be beginning and ending the clause with THR. But there's so much in between, you, you, you probably wouldn't hear it. You wouldn't notice it. By doing it twice at the beginning of the sentence, through the throat, now it's in your head. Right Now it's in your ear, that THR sound. Um, and so when thrust comes at the end, it has, um, uh, it has a... Uh, there's a kind of um, completion to it, right? There's a sort of closure to the cadence of the clause in that way. Um, and the, I think this is the kind of thing, I believe, that um, Tolkien is very much thinking about. Um, the way that his ear was very frequently attuned to this sort of thing. Um, to the, the cadence and rhythm of his sentences and his prose. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, Jackie says it also impacts the way the reader imagines the action unfolding. Yes. Yes. Um, the action, the verb... Right, which is of course syntactically, it's actually a noun, right? Thrust at the end, but it's the noun. Thrust is the noun that is describing the actual action that Bor that Aragorn rather is performing, right? So what he's inviting us to imagine is the action of that thrusting of his sword through the throat um, of a huge warg leader, right? Um, and so he builds up to the action to the. The, the the payoff, right? The money word, which is thrust here. Um, and uh, yeah, exactly, Ambrosius. Two to introduce, one to cap it off. That's exactly right. Um, now, um, great. Ambrosius, uh, Bjorning, thank you for copying that. I missed that before. Um, is Tolkien's sticking to a pattern of three alliterations um, as in Anglo-Saxon poetry. So, no, <clears throat> um, I d he is not using the Anglo-Saxon alliterative patterns. Um, it's not like this scans. Um, in case you're suspecting, which is like an awesome suspicion, right, to sort of read the prose and say, wait a second, is he actually writing an alliterative verse, but like hiding it from us, right? Like try, trying to sneak in Anglo-Saxon alliterative verse at unawares uh, upon us. No. No, he's not. Um, and I, 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 I'm ready to say that pretty emphatically. Look at Gandalf's words, in particular the end of his speech. Um, so, hang on. Let me back up a step first. The standard alliterative line in Old English poetry has four beats to it, four main strong beats uh, in the line. 
uh, with like a cesura in the middle. So there's a little pause in the middle, two beats on either side of that. There can be many syllables. It's not four syllables. Um, there can be lots of syllables, but there are the, these, the, the primarily stressed syllables. There are two main stresses on each side of the cesura, four per line. And there are particular patterns in how the, and, and the alliteration, it comes on those beats, right? There are four beats. There's a bunch of different patterns that ang that Anglo-Saxon poets used um, in order to, you know, to, to deploy their alliteration there. But there's one very consistent pattern in that, in, in those things. And that is, of those four beats, there's one of them that is almost never stressed. The, sorry, it is almost never has alliteration on it. One of those four stresses, one of those four beats in the line that almost never is part of the alliterative structure. And that's the fourth, the final one. The sort of, it's a, it's a very standard defining element of Anglo-Saxon poetry. It's, 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 um, there are lots of other variations, but this is one of the least varying elements of Anglo-Saxon verse. It doesn't mean it never varies, but it's one of the least variable of all of their, um, of all of their structures and tendencies is that of the four beats, the fourth one is not included. You can alliterate the first and the third. You can do first, second, and third. You can even do second and third. Third is almost always part of the alliteration. Um, occasionally you'll see first and second with neither, either a weak one on the third and not on the fourth or something. But the fourth is almost never part of the pattern. Um, in other words, to end a line with a strong alliteration is exactly what Anglo-Saxon poetry does not do. Um, that's uh, uh, that's just it's it's just contrary to all of the rhythmic flow of alliterative poetry. Um, so the reason I quickly and strongly said no, he's not following Anglo-Saxon poetic patterns, um, is is for that reason because we can see a tendency um, certainly in the through the throat uh, past his sword with a thrust sentence or clause independent clause there um and even in gandalf's speech fling fuel on the fire so we, we do have three alliterations as you do often see in a line but there's no fourth beat right and then in the next one draw your blades and stand back to back that sentence is actually structured very like an anglo-saxon alliterative line with two beats it's got four primary beats stand is kind of you know yeah but like draw your blades and stand back to back so I would put the I would say the four stresses of that line would be draw blades back to back, but the pattern is not does not fit like it, the 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 stresses are on two three and four, in that case all of the weight is towards the end of the line and again as I say we 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 see that we see that in more than one place, um, notice even in smaller ways like sentence two, of the first paragraph suddenly Frodo started from sleep. There again, we have three S's in that sentence, right? But one at the very beginning, one in the very middle, and one at the end, again. Um, his tendency throughout this passage, his alliterative tendency throughout this passage, is to um, to come in strong, right? Like with the doubles in the leaping light, westward the waning moon. Um, but he is also tending to hammer it at the end. Um, and... Um, Anyway, so so this is not um, 
what all this is to say is not that like Tolkien is breaking the rules or something like that. It's that the effect that he's going for here is different from the effect that um, Anglo-Saxon poetry generally is sort of going for. Um, it um, it always tends to um, one of the ways in which Old English in general and Old English poetry in particular tends to differ from modern English and from modern English poetry as well. And in both of these ways, we have been influenced, we've been affected, um, some might possibly say infected, um, by French, by the Latin stuff, the Romance stuff. Um, the one of the primary, one of the most fundamental effects that the infusion of French and the Romance influences upon English had um, uh, was to shift the stress, uh, the stresses from the beginnings to the ends. Um, stress on the first syllable um, and at the beginnings of line, at the first syllables of words and near the beginnings of lines. Um, is the that's the the primary uh, sort of uh, audible technique um, of uh, of 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 Old English in modern English again through the French right through the Romance influence we tended now with them and we've talked about this when we've talked about poetry almost the natural rhythm of English um, of spoken English is iambic unstressed stressed bum 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 where the stress comes at the end of the pairing. Um, so unstressed, stressed, unstressed, stressed, bum, 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 bum. Um, that's the, that's the, the native rhythm um, of, I mean, you're, you're going to talk in I am's unless you try not to. Um, uh, notice what I just said there? Unless you try not to. Um, unless you try not to. Then the, the last one was switched. But again, the very sentence in which I uttered that was predominantly iambic in its patterns. It's just how English goes. Um, it is kind of like a heartbeat, Bima, absolutely. Um, uh, but again, Old English, and when you hear it, it's very striking to the modern English, to the modern ear, you know, that's used to modern English, um, because the stresses are different. The stresses are, it's more trochaic. That is the stress at the beginning. Bum, 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 bum. Um, uh, right, all the strain is at the beginning. Like you hear how it does not go bum 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 bum. It's very much, um, it's very much at the beginning. Um, anyway, um, Tolkien is using alliteration. He's deploying it as heartily as any uh, as any Anglo-Saxon shop that is to say bard, um, would deploy it, but he's deploying it more in touch with the rhythm of modern English. He's not trying to change modern English. He's not trying to replicate old English rhythms. He's using old English tools to, um, uh, to adorn, uh, and emphasize his modern English, which is pretty awesome, actually. Um, Again, I think a marvelous example is that one we've been talking about, the, the leading up to the thrust, right? He wants to, he wants you to imagine the thing, um, but he ends with that emphatic 
thrust. Um, uh, it's like um, it's like he's telling you, like he's feeding for you the image to picture through the throat of one huge leader, Aragorn, past his sword. So um, you've been invited to imagine the throat of a huge leader and Aragorn passing his sword through it. Like, we know what's happening, right? It's like then that final word is where he says, and action, right? Um, so with that final word, you now can kind of take what his prose has given you through the throat of one huge leader, Aragorn, past his sword, right? So you've, you've been given all the facts, right? Like you've been set up for it, and now you're ready to kind of act it out in your head in that one word with a thrust. Um, uh, yeah, ending with a killing blow. Exactly, exactly. Um, uh, and then notice how then it goes into the next one. With a great sweep, Boromir hewed the head off another. Um, hewed the head, that's, there's the action you know, the, the core action is, this time it actually is the verb, hewed, right? Um, now, we've already, we don't need as much buildup because we, um, we've we already have in our head, like that Aragorn doing something to the neck of, uh, of a huge wolf is already in our head, right? And so now we're just invited to apply that to Boromir, but with a different motion, right? We, we get the prompting of the different motion with a great sweep, at the beginning, so still keep thinking about wolves and necks, right? But now think about Boromir, and he's now, so now he's slashing instead of stabbing, right? Um, and then you get the emphasis on the action, once again with the alliteration, hewed the head off another. Um, uh, so cool. And yes, Nancy, it's fascinating, isn't it, that he doesn't comment on the first use of Andoral? It's just not a big deal. First time the sword that was broken and has been forged anew has been drawn in battle. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah, just mentions it like it's, uh, uh, like it ain't, like it ain't no thing, right? <laughs> Kurtzimus, I agree. Kurtzimus says, where's Findigil? Asleep on the job, right? Come on, Findigil. That's a moment where you'd think we need a little Gondorian interruption here. Right, a little, a little, a little Gondorian expansion. Somebody, those hobbits in the north who are, you know, good writers in many respects, but like they do undersell certain moments, like the appearance of Arwen, you know, uh, the queen uh, on the scene the first time. Um, yeah, yeah. But Jackie, you're right. I mean, the sentence really is pretty epic as it is. So maybe, you know, Findigil thought about it and was just like, you know what, like that's a brilliantly constructed sentence. I'm just not going to mess. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Okay, so, um, uh, okay. Um, yeah, that's it, it, interesting, Aspen. Aspen says, I wonder if Gimli and Legolas hit anything. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, Aspen, because Aspen's course saying that because we don't, we don't know. Beside them, Gimli stood with his stout legs apart, wielding his dwarf axe. All right, he's wielding it. Um, no description of wolf carnage attached to that, right? Um, you know, has he successfully dismembered anybody? We 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 don't know, right? We're not told. Um, the bow of Legolas may be singing. 
I'm gonna guess presumably many of his arrows are finding targets, but uh, we don't we're not we're not really told. Um, that's really interesting, right? What do we see about in particular contrasting it with the last battle scene that we saw, right? Um, in other or to, to sort of to say this a different way or to ask the question, the implicit question a different way. Um, what is the what is the difference? Where, how has our focus of attention changed? In the first little mini skirmish, we were just getting these disjointed sound effects and things, right? These disjointed sensory perceptions, as if the hobbits were like hearing things and seeing some things and not really being able to follow exactly what happened. The wolf fell. Oh, wait, look, there's a there's an arrow in his throat. Um, uh, what was that noise? Oh, right. Bowstring. Legolas's bow. That's what that was. Um, yes, the passive voice is gone to Juice Man. Absolutely. That passive voice that was um, serving so strongly in those previous, those previous paragraphs. Listen to me alliterate in this sentence. Serving so strongly in these previous paragraphs. I'm infected by the alliteration. You can't help it. It gets into your bones. Um, uh, but um, anyway, yeah, that... We're not getting that here at all. Um, and that shift, I'm glad you pointed to that, to Juice Man, because I think that's that's really important here. And that really illustrates the difference between these two passages. Where's the focus of our attention? The focus of our attention is on the people, right? It's on the people. Um, we're not describing exactly what hideous uh, wounds... Gimli might be opening uh, in uh, in the Wargs because they're not focused on they're focused on Gimli. Um, they're focused on Legolas, or at least on his bow. Um, you know, they are um, the the song like they heard a twang, an isolated twang, the last time. Right as as the sound of his bow is described, the description of it as singing is um, conveys the the speed with which he is drawing and firing it. No, I don't think he's playing the musical bow, Bob. I, I think that's quite different. Um, um, nor is it like the singing sword from I think that's Bugs Bunny, um, but. Um, but yes, the, so the fact that he, his firing of his, firing, listen to me, his, uh, his pulling of his bow is, um, uh, is, because of course you don't fire a bow. There's no, there's no, there's no fire involved. Uh, associating firing with uh, the launching of projectiles is a, is a, you know, a firearms thing, not a, not a bow thing. Um, but, um, Yes, you, you release an arrow or you loose an arrow. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, um, there's so much twanging, right, of his bow that it sounds like song, right? It sounds like it's singing. Um, they are amazed. It's like, again, our Hobbit narrator here, um, presumably Frodo, unless we have reason to think otherwise. Um, Frodo is, is like amazed at the skill of Legolas with his bow so much so that he's not even looking to see where the arrows are going. He's just focused and he's not even looking at Legolas himself. He's just staring at the bow and listening to its song. Um, uh, Gimli, too. His posture is described. Stood with his stout legs apart. Right? That's what the alliteration draws our attention to. 
is his stance, right? Um, beside them, Gimli stood with his stout legs apart. The stoutness of the dwarf. Um, as Remember, this is going to be especially impressive to hobbits cowering behind him at this point as wolves come, uh, uh, come, come, come into the clearing. Um, uh, he's wielding his dwarf axe, but again, they're not, they're not thinking about it. So we see the actions, um, the decapitation of the second warg, right? The, um, the impaling through the throat of the first one by Aragorn. The wargs themselves get included there. Um, but it's, it's almost like a sort of transition, right? Um, remember at the beginning of the paragraph, in the leaping light as the fresh wood blazed up. So the fire leaps up, the light in, 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 increases suddenly as the flames leap. And what does he see first? He sees many gray shapes springing over the ring of stones. Um, so we get... First, he sees the wolves. The focus is first on the wolves. Aragorn and Boromir form the transition. Those wolves that leap over start getting start getting slain, right? First by Ar by Aragorn and by Boromir, and then the attention like moves inwards. Um, the uh, the the those first attacks by Aragorn and Boromir then kind of transition the description to just focusing on their four defenders. Right. Number five, Gandalf is uh, about to enter into things here next. Right. Um, but. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, um, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, thank you. Um, thank you. Uh, Adric. I appreciate that. Yes. Um, Shelton uh, uh, is a shoot. Shoot is a verb from Old English. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you can shoot arrows, in fact. Um, uh, that was uh, the shooting of firearms is that's the adoption of an old metaphor. Um, just like driving cars is a is an old metaphor of when you used to drive animals um, uh, or uh, even chariots to drive a chariot is the same thing. Um, but um, anyway. Uh, OK. Yes. Um, more alliteration. More alliteration. Back to the first paragraph. Because once those pairings start drawing attention to things, like we were looking at the sort of the effects, the way that, that the alliteration... Um, well, hang on. Conclusions from that second paragraph, where that we have spent a lot of time in looking at the alliteration and how it's how it's functioning there. Um, uh, there are a couple patterns here. One is that we can see how Tolkien is guiding the cadence, shaping the cadence of these sentences, um, and the alliteration is a big part of that. But he's using the alliteration as a way to sort of shine a spotlight on things. Just as I said, like, what are we supposed to pay attention to with Gimli? His, his, the, his stoutness, right? 
that is the attribute we're supposed to receive. We're 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 supposed to take away there the image of him standing there, standing there immovably. Um, it's not like the impressively deft ways in which he moves his axe, right? Or even the strength which with which he hews things. Those things aren't what is being emphasized, right? What is being emphasized is that Gimli is Gimli is is like a rock or a tree planted there, right? Um, and the that emphasis is made with the alliteration. Beside them, uh, Gimli stood with his stout legs apart. Um, stood stout. That's what we get from Gimli. What do we get from Boromir? Hewed the head. Right, this uh, you know his kind of hero move, right? And then with Aragorn, we get that whole build-up through the throat thrust, and of course we begin the paragraph with leaping light, and then shapes spring, um, leaping light, shapes spring more and more through the throat, hewed the head, stood stout, right? Those alliterative um, little bits there. Those alliterative phrases tell almost the whole story of um, of the entire battle, of that entire paragraph, right? Um, so that he wants, that Tolkien wants to draw our attention to certain things. Um, not just by using alliteration, but but again, by going out of his way, by, by, by putting them right next to each other where you're not going to miss them, even if you're not paying close attention. Um, now, back to the first paragraph. Do we see similar patterns there? The night was old, and westward the waning moon was setting, gleaming fitfully through the breaking clouds. Suddenly Frodo started from sleep. Without warning, a storm of howls broke out fierce and wild all about the camp. A great host of wargs had gathered silently and was now attacking them from every side at once. What do you hear there? It's not as forceful in the first paragraph. We get some things, like Westward the Waning, as I've pointed out. Westward the Waning, and without warning, right? So we get, uh, you know, we get two of those. Um, and then we get the suddenly Frodo started from sleep, right? Um, the thing that I can't help but notice is that those are the um, those are the three phrases that I would say, like three phrases or clauses um, that I would where, that where I would say the alliteration is most insistent in that first paragraph. Um, what is the effect of of these? Well, I can't help but think, uh, but notice rather that two out of those three phrases are alliterating on W. We're getting lots of W. Westward the waning, without warning. Um, and I think we're building up to, you know, westward the waning, without warning, a great host of wargs. Um, uh, wargs is the word that I feel like we've been building up to in that, uh, in that whole paragraph, right? Um, westward the waning is like foreshadowing without warning is, uh, now we're, we're, we're 
starting to build up to the big reveal, right? Without warning, a storm of howls broke out fierce and wild. We get a little another free W in the middle of that sentence, right? Um, but even that seems almost a tease. Notice there's it's not exactly the same shape, but we we're getting the the two plus one just like we did with through the throat and thrust later on. It's not quite the same like the two at the beginning and then ending with the big punch at the end. It's not quite the same there, but we're still getting a similar kind of thing, right? Without warning, uh, a storm of howls broke out fierce and wild all about the the camp. Um, it's like the, the third one isn't the one that we're expecting in a sense, right? Wargs is what we've been waiting for. Um, it's the... It's the uh, the sort of expected conclusion. Um, and then we finally get it. A great host of wargs had gathered silently. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, yes. Uh, w is a very prominent initial word, uh, letter, uh, uh, word sound in Old English. Yeah. Um, Lots of W's, lots of W's used in alliteration. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> yes, wargs are what we're waiting for. Exactly. Like I said, once you start talking about alliteration, it just, it happens. You can't, you can't stop it. Um, and yeah, Josh, I, I do agree. Wargs is a really strong sounding word, uh, no matter what. Yes, a great host of wargs. Um, yes, yes. Um, um, so in some ways, I feel like the two W pairings are sort of preparation, right? Their preparation, the wild is sort of the teaser, um, because of course the wild in The Hobbit is where the wargs lived, right? Um, well, no, I should say the wild is where the wargs were, perhaps, uh, better. Um, um, yeah, yeah. Morgo Hamster, by the way, that's an awesome screen name. Um, I pronounced it wargs, basically wargs, um, like almost all the way, um, almost all the way through, um, most of my life, I pronounced it wargs. Um, but I've been trying to break that habit because um, it really should be warg, I think. Not just like a British versus American thing. Um, uh, yeah, as Bjorn Sonner says, war and war have kind of mer merged a lot in American English. Um, but um, it's just, it's, it is... I, the the word in Old English is wearg, W-E-A-R-G. Um, and you it's how you hit the A, like the, where that A comes from. Um, it's clearly not war. It's war. Um, warg is, I think, and just because Tolkien was so... He cared a lot about how words sounded, right? And so I think that warg... Which is a word, I mean, notice that word is almost like onomatopoetical. Like, it sounds like a growl, right? It sounds like a wolf growling. Warg. Um, so, and whereas warg really just doesn't have the same effect at all. Um, but, um, uh, anyway, yeah. Um, 
Yes, if you say it piratey, it sounds eviler. Yes, agree, agree. Um, uh, yes. Um, okay, so... But now, but let's go. We, we skipped over the other one. Suddenly, Frodo started from sleep. Um, notice that we don't get the same pattern. Westward the waning, without warning, fling fuel on the fire, uh, stand back to back, leaping light, through the throat, more and more, hewed the head, stood with his stout. Um, suddenly, Frodo started from sleep is not, does not have the same pattern, right? Um, because we don't get the two, you know, uh, suddenly starting from sleep, Frodo, right? Like that's, that would have, you know, would have been more like the alliterative pattern, but we don't get it. We get it balanced, um, throughout, but of course it's so beautiful, that sentence, isn't it? I mean, you've got five words. Three of them start with S's. Words one, three, and five start with S's. And then words two and four start with F's. I mean, it's beautiful. <laughs> it's just gorgeous. Suddenly, Frodo started from sleep. Um, and the rhythm is really compelling, too. Suddenly, Frodo started from sleep. Um, uh, and it's an interesting rhythm, too. Suddenly, Frodo started from sleep. Um, uh, the way that it sort of shifts between, um, like, it's like a, almost a trochaic feel. Um, no, sorry, not trochaic. Uh, I mean, dactylic, which is very unusual. That's, um, um, suddenly is a, is, is a, is a dactylic word. Um, that is three, a, a pattern of a foot of three beats with the stress at the beginning. Bum, 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 bum. Um, I am the Lorax. I speak for the trees. Um, that's dactylic. Um, no, trochaic is a is a two foot beat. Bump them, bump them, bump them, bump them. If it's three beats in a foot, um, so if you got two unstressed syllables after the stress, it's dactylic. If it's one unstressed, if they're alternating stressed and unstressed, it's trochaic. Um, um, yes, it is like a six, eight meter rhythmically. Yes, exactly. Um, but it's not even all the way through. Suddenly Frodo, Frodo is a, a trochaic word, right? By itself. First two syllables, stress on the first syllable. Suddenly Frodo started from, started from is the dactylic pattern again, just like suddenly, suddenly started from. Right, same same pattern, and then it ends with a it ends with a um, a, a beat, just like suddenly goes up to Frodo. Suddenly, Frodo started from sleep. It, I get, it's just such a perfect sentence. It's so good. The rhythm is beautiful. The alliteration is impeccable. Just amazing. Um, but um, uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah, sorry. The, there's, the Lorax is interesting, Bjarne's honor. Sorry, I just, uh, um, I, Dr. Seuss is the greatest illustrator of different poetic meters. Um, I used to give quizzes on Dr. Seuss poems in my English 101 class uh, back in the day. Um, uh, 
the Lorax is complicated. It's 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 uh, it's dactylic in places, but it shifts to anapest um, in other places. It's it's interesting. Anapestic tetrameter is one of Dr. Seuss's favorite meters. He uses anapest um, more persistently than most English poets do. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyhow, okay. Um, yes. Oh, and by the way, if you're um, if you're reading Dr. Seuss to a child, and you're not letting the rhythm through, um, you're doing a disservice to the child, right? Dr. Seuss is the best trainer of a child's ear. Um, don't do what stage actors do and film actors as well. Don't try to turn it into English conversation. Um, some people do that when reading Dr. Seuss to kind of make it more engaging, you know? Um, uh, uh, don't do it. Don't do it. Let the rhythm flow. Let the, let the, make sure you let the rhythm come out. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Beyond Asana, that's the advanced course, right? If you can, uh, if you can get in the habit of reading, of letting Dr. Seuss's rhythm come through, which is really, really strong, right? Um, uh, yeah, but you've got to, you've got to let it. If you can let, kids will love it. Kids love rhythm. Um, kids love books with rhythm. It's it it naturally appeals, like song and dance naturally appeals to people. Um, it's just part of how we're wired. Um, so yeah, um, don't, um, don't try to make it sound like normal speech. Let the rhythm come in. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, but yeah, I, sorry. Um, Bjorn Asana was saying, uh, you should also read Shakespeare and let the rhythm flow in Shakespeare. Yes, like almost no actors are capable of doing. Uh, like modern actors, just, it's hopeless. Um, it's hopeless. Like modern actors, all of their training um, works against it because um, to let the meter flow on its own and let the let the let the rhythm of the wine unfold poetically to do that is to let it come out of you in a way that is like not how a person would talk normally right um and so they yeah um hearing actors even great actors read poetry um it's often horrible like i just um even poor derek jacoby um, Derek Jacob is just, uh, needless to say, an amazing actor. Um, I love his reading of, you know, I, I have his uh, the audiobook of his, uh, of course, his, um, um, I almost call it Beyond Middle Earth because that was the name of the class I taught on it. Um, the um, Tales from the Perilous Realm, right? So he does he does Smith of Wooten Major, he does Leaf by Niggle, he does uh, Rover Random, um, you know, all of those, you know, Tolkien stories and stuff really great stuff. Just marvelous hearing him read all of those things. I just love it. And then he reads um, and then he reads uh, The Adventures of Tom Bombadil and seriously I, I can't. 
I can't. I steeled myself to listen to Derek Jacoby's reading of The Adventures of Tom Bombadil all the way through. And when I got to the end, I literally said to myself, never again. Like, I am never letting those tracks play as long as I live in my ear again. Uh, Because he just, he just can't, he can't, he can't let the rhythm speak. Um, But um, anyway... Anyway, um, uh, <laughs> interesting. Boromir's Horn says, I am a mostly Shakespearean actor uh, by profession. Everything you are saying is true. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's yeah, it's like I said, it's it's not it's just it's not what actors do. And what they do is awesome. And I love it. And I even love seeing Shakespeare performed on stage. Um, but yeah, to to let the poetic meter breathe. Oh, man. Um but um anyhow okay um uh yeah yeah um mm-hmm. okay praise this is me not going off on a tangent uh this is me not ranting about Andy Serkis's Lord of the Rings reading not going there not talking about it um uh okay um what are we talking about Yes, suddenly Frodo. That's how we got onto poetic meter, because I was looking at the I was looking at the the metrical shape of that sentence. And again, like that kind of thing. Um, suddenly Frodo started from sleep. Um, the way that suddenly and started from have exactly the same rhythm, with exactly the same alliterative structure. Um, that doesn't that, that that doesn't happen by accident, right? This is um, Tolkien is really shaping these paragraphs um as things intensify um he is really he is really dialing it up um uh okay the both the the uh compelling rhythmic patterns of that sentence and the tight alliterative structure of that sentence really makes it stand out um, even the length of it in the context of these paragraphs where we're getting um, compound sentences um, with uh, we're getting compound, compound, complex sentences. The night was old and westward the waning moon was setting, gleaming fitfully through the breaking clouds is the first sentence of the paragraph. And then suddenly Frodo started from sleep. Without warning, a storm of howls broke out fierce and wild all about the camp. A great host of wargs had gathered silently and was now attacking them from every side at once. You hear how that one sentence, um, both the urgency of the meter, it's not a sudden sentence, right? That is to say, it's not like a a really quick, like it could be two or three words or even just a couple syllables. It's a bunch of syllables, right? It sort of, it stretches out a little bit. Um, but it gains this um, this urgency through its rhythm and through its alliterative um, uh, its alliterative patterns. Um, thinking about things, I'm uh, there are some other kind of deeper patterns of alliteration that we can hear, I think. Like, for instance, um, a great host of wargs had gathered silently. The G's there. Great host and gathered. The great host gathered. Um, which is interesting because it's basically the subject and verb, right? 
um, well, great host had gathered. We have H's and G's both there, flipped around, or like symmetrically. Great host had gathered um, with wargs in the middle, right? A great host of wargs had gathered. Um, uh, so again, you can see him sort of shaping these things. Um, and those G's pick up, there was a G, we got a G earlier on, right? An important G, gleaming, um, gleaming fitfully through the breaking clouds, um, uh, kind of connecting the, uh, the, the, the gathering of the wargs with the setting of the... Notice the, um, the emphasis on the light in the first... Uh, in the first sentence, the core idea, uh, the core idea of um, uh, of the first sentence is there in those first four words. The night was old, right? So it's the 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 night is everything is waning and setting, right? The night was old, everything's on the downward turn, right? The waning moon is setting westward, gleaming fitfully through the breaking. Even the clouds are breaking, right? Everything is dispersing, descending, going away. Um, and then, but the great host had gathered silently and is now attacking them from every side at once. So as the light and even the clouds as the night is ending, the light is fading, the moon is setting, the clouds even are dispersing, the wargs have been gathering, right? Um, silently gathering. Um, yes, yes. Um, and yes, a good, I see it, there's a discussion on the word host uh, going on here. Um, and you're right, host is a military word, definitely. Um, a great host of wargs. It's like host is more or less a synonym, a synonym of the word army, um, just from a different language group, right? Um, host is what they would say in Old English. Um, uh, army, not really a Germanic word, I don't think. Um, uh, but yes, and then I saw uh, um, somebody who was at um, Admiral Kiriatur says, uh, host of angels. Um, yes, the heavenly hosts, uh, when they appear to the shepherds uh, um, in the Christmas story. Uh, yeah, that's meant to be terrifying. Yes, it's like an entire army uh, uh, arrayed in the field, the field of the heavens in this case, right? Um Yes, yes. Um, yeah. So yes, it is. And it picks up on the one. Of, it's the use of the word host, like the use of the word captain uh, before, suggests an intelligence, an ordering, a strategy. This is not just when wolves attack, right? This is not just some wild animal assault that's going on here on this hillside. This is a carefully planned um, military attack um, by an obviously um, um, an obviously intelligent um, you know force of force of, of, of force of folks uh, force of uh, um, yeah yeah um, yes. 
Faramir, and I was pretty sure that Arma was from Latin. Yeah, exactly. That's the Romance version. Um, host, again, is what what the Germans would say. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, um, notice how they're gathering silently. There was all the howling before, right? Which was intimidating in its own way. Now the wolves are actively trying to take them by surprise. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Sorry, I'm fo I've been focusing so much on the sound that I want to make sure that um, we are getting all the visual stuff that we're um, hearing. A storm of howls broke out fierce and wild all about the camp. Um, I would also, I, I like how howls anticipates host here. I think it's another reason why we have a host of wargs um, because of the storm of howls. Um, I think that storm also, like storm of howls as a phrase, it kind of transitions between um, how did, why did Frodo suddenly start from sleep? Because of the storm of howls that broke out, right? Um, so the phrase storm of howls serves as a transition between the suddenly starting from sleep and the host of wargs, right? That had gathered. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, what else was I going to say? I think that's it. The one thing I'm interested in, the last thing I'm, I've been interested in a lot of things, the lack of alliteration in the final sentence, the bow of Legolas was singing. Um, I'm, um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um, it is a nice contrast. Um, I'm just sorry. The thing that I'm thinking about, the thing that I'm kind of asking myself, is like, so what is, what is the effect of that? And when I try to answer this question, this kind of question, one, um, one tool that I've often found very useful is to ask myself, how would it, how would it be if it were different, right? Like, uh, to sort of do alliteration in that last sentence and see how does it strike me differently. Do you see what I mean? Like, it, it, it's um, to really kind of draw attention to what is and isn't there. Um, uh, yeah, so Cunctator, I agree. If it were an egregiously alliterative sentence, swiftly sang the splendid sylvan bow or something like that, yeah. Um, uh, or even just, you know, the bow of Legolas was swiftly singing or 
strongly singing or sweetly singing or something, right? Like, while his bow gently we wept, you know, or whatever. Um, uh, if you... Um, if you add alliteration to that sentence, um, you know, how does it, how does it change it? How does it, um, um, what else does it give it, you know, in, um, uh, um, in the, yeah, sorry. Yeah. I've seen this other conversation going on host in the sense of the Eucharistic bread is from a totally different, that's from the Latin, that's not from the old English word, that's from the Latin word for sacrifice, the thing sacrificed. It's the sacrificial thing. Um, that's why it's called the host, um, because it is it is like the sacrificial meat on the altar. Yeah, sorry, totally different, totally different word, actually. Um, but um, uh, anyway, yeah, so... Um, Silk Westcott, that is more like the way that I'm kind of thinking of it there, that the sentence at the end is, it's the short sentence at the end is like a palate cleanser in a way. Um, also, yes, Aspen, the fact that, notice that of all of the things described in that paragraph, um, everything is visual. The light, the shapes, the more and more shapes, um, the actions of Aragorn and Boromir, the... Uh, the, the you know, stoutness of uh, of of Gimli's standing, um, the in the bow of Legolas, we're getting a sound description. We're getting we're getting oral input for the first time. Again, our own oral reception of it has been being manipulated by the alliteration, but the actual things being conveyed are all visual. Um. And in that last sentence, we get a, um, so it's like he was, he's been, I, I, I compared the alliteration to shining a spotlight, right? Leaping light, um, uh, saw, uh, saw shapes spring more and more through the throat thrust, hewed the head, stood with his stout. Um, it's shining light onto the things we're supposed to be looking at, right? The things we're supposed to be focusing on. It tells the visual story of that paragraph, but the um, the paragraph doesn't end with a uh, with a visual image. It ends with an aural, like the 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 aural accompaniment, right? The musical accompaniment of the entire you know series of um, pictures uh, that we've been moving to. That the alliteration has been kind of pushing us from one picture uh, to the other. Um, and um, and that's and, and and we find instead it's like Legolas's bow has provided this soundtrack, right? Um, uh, that has been singing beneath all of this stuff, and so so he doesn't he doesn't put it in uh, he doesn't put it in parallel to the rest of the things that he's that he's done. Um, and I think that that break seems to fit because, again, he's broken with the, um, the you know, the sense that he is having us that he's having us do. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Um, all right. 
I'm going to peek ahead to the next one. We don't have that much time. We have a little more time. And I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to begin. I want to get into the next paragraph. I know, it's pretty shocking, right? In the wavering firelight, Gandalf seemed suddenly to grow. He rose up, a great menacing shape, like the monument of some ancient king of stone set upon a hill. Stooping like a cloud, he lifted a burning branch and strode to meet the wolves. They gave back before him. High in the air, he tossed the blazing brand. It flared with a sudden white radiance like lightning, and his voice rolled like thunder. Nar on in Dreyfamen, nar down in Garhoth, he cried. Um, okay, but boy, you can hear it, right? We'll come back to his elvish words. I don't want to get distracted with that right now. Um, instead, I want to focus on the, on a, I, I want to focus on the sound, right? There's a lot to talk about here and we'll come back to some of it next time. But since we've been talking about alliteration all this time, did you hear it all? My goodness, right? Listen to it again. Listen again carefully to the patterns of the alliteration in this paragraph. In the wavering firelight, Gandalf seemed suddenly to grow. He rose up, a great menacing shape, like the monument of some ancient king of stone set upon a hill. Stooping like a cloud, he lifted a burning branch and strode to meet the wolves. They gave back before him. High in the air, he tossed the blazing brand. It flared with a sudden white radiance like lightning, and his voice rolled like thunder. Um, stooped like a cloud is amazing. Yes, yes. Um... Uh, how does a cloud stoop? A cloud stoops. Um, clouds stoop all the time. Um, um, clouds lower, and that's very much like stooping, actually. Um, uh, exactly. Bjorning was just saying the same thing. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Bormir's horn has it exactly right. The way a thunder, a thunder crowd, thunder cloud, uh, seems to like roll and press down on you. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, uh, but anyway, focus on the alliteration for now. Tonight has been alliteration night, right? I'm going to try to get past alliteration next time because there are many other levels of things to discuss in this paragraph, right? Um, so I want to just begin with the alliterative patterns to see how he is following up, because this is coming towards the climax, right? Um, in the first paragraph, all we get, well, notice the second whole second half, we get in the wavering firelight. No obvious alliteration at the front of the sentence, right? But then notice the second half. Gandalf seemed suddenly to grow. G-S-S-G, -S -S right? Gandalf seemed suddenly to grow. So we have, again, not only alliteration, but this kind of shaped alliteration, just like suddenly Frodo started from sleep, right? Um, he rose up, a great menacing shape. Um, so the great shape, again, picking up on those S's and, uh, and G's from the, from the previous phrase, right? Like the monument, menacing monument, Right, like the monument of some ancient king of stone set upon a hill. 
we're getting the continued S's, right? Um, seem suddenly shape some stone set, stooping like a cloud. He lifted a burning branch and strode to meet the wolves. Um, the S's are all about Gandalf's, like, actions, right? Or even, like, our perception of Gandalf, right? They're all about how Gandalf looks to us, seemed suddenly shape some ancient king of stone, stooping and strode, right? Strode is finally the verb that describes what he actually does, like the action that he, in fact, takes. Um, stooping like a cloud. I mean, he is bending over, actually, to pick up a burning branch at that point, right? So that is, in fact, an action that he performs uh, as well. Um, yeah, oh, Miss Ray, I like that. Great shape and ancient. I'll have that long A, too, so we're getting some assonance here. Um, great menacing shape, like the monument of some ancient king of stone. Yes. Um, uh but then we get something else, right? Between stooping like a cloud and strode to meet the wolves, um, we get burning branch, uh, right? This, so the burning branch is what he picks up. Um, they gave back before him. So you've got, so if, if the S's are first like about how he appears and then what he starts doing, right? The B's then come in and start um, showing like they're like the, the 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 manifestation of his threat, right? The burning branch. He lifts a burning branch. They give back, and then he tosses the blazing brand. He just said burning branch, and you wouldn't think that it would be very easy to come up with two two word phrases describing the same thing, both alliterating on all Bs, <laughs> right? Um, yes, back before, exactly. They gave back before, burning branch, back before, blazing brand. Yes, yes. Um, uh, so, like, the effect that he's having on, the, the, the threat of his fiery power, right, um, uh, which is impressing the wolves, right? And again, notice how the S's are kind of interlaced with that, right? Um, and then we shift. It flared with a sudden white radiance like lightning, and his voice rolled like thunder. Um, we get all... The, the last sentence features almost all liquids, right? Radiance rolled like lightning. So the two R's on the outside and the two L's in the middle. Notice that that shape... Um, it's the, it's not just the repeated pairs, burning branch, blazing brand, like lightning, um, uh, stone set, right? Um, it's not just this, these kinds of pairings, which we were seeing in the previous paragraph. Um, it's not just those that he, he's using those, but he's doing more than that. It's about how he is interleaving them together. Like we saw from the first sentence, Gandalf seemed suddenly to grow. Um, and now, again, we're getting the stooping strode um, with, but we begin interweaving burning branch in the middle of that, which then comes up to back before and blazing brand, right? 
Um, and then we get the same pattern. Radiance, like lightning, rolled. Like thunder. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yep. So, um, oh yeah, the rhythm of the last sentence. Abelard, I completely agree. It flared with a sudden white radiance like lightning, and his voice rolled like thunder. Um, oh, man. Um, yeah, yeah. This is... When Tolkien gets really into, like, action prose like this, um, it starts to sound like something that you just want to declaim from a stage, right? Stooping like a cloud, he lifted a burning branch and strode to meet the wolves. They gave back before him. High in the air, he tossed the blazing brand. It flared with a sudden white radiance like lightning, and his voice rolled like thunder. Oh, so good. So good. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's so good. Um, The shift to the liquids, which is particularly, um, we're going straight from plosives, that is all the bees, back before blazing brand, um, to liquids, which is a, a really significant shift, right? I mean, plosives like P and B are about the most, you know, are some of the most violent con consonants that you get, right? You start alliterating on B like that, burning branch back before blazing brand, um, and it's enormously percussive, right? Um, and, um, but then the alliteration on liquids, R's and L's, very gentle. Radiance like lightning and his voice rolled like thunder. Even the word rolled contains, you know, rolled is an extremely liquid ver uh, word, right? With both the R's and the L's. Um, yeah. Uh, I, 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 you want to roll that last R, I think, don't you? It flared with a sudden white radiance like lightning, and his voice rolled like thunder. Um, almost, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I agree, the sound of the word roll like that is, uh, uh, is roll. Is, is, it's, it, it is, it's like the way that it like sits in the back of your mouth, right? Almost in your throat rolled, uh, is like the sound of, like, thunder rumbling inside a cloud, right? Right. Um, yeah, so good. So good. Um, um, yeah, Rowan, I like that. The B's hit you over the head, the S's get under your skin, and the L's wash over you. 
<laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Um, so good, so good. Um, even the way that the the G comes back in and they gave back before him, picking up the Gandalf growing great menacing shape, they gave back. Of course they did. Um, yeah. I always loved the sentence in the middle. Stooping like a cloud, he lifted a burning branch and strode to meet the wolves. Um, oh, man, so good. Yes, and the next paragraph is really amazing, too. This whole section is so good. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, so, um, Tomas, yes, Tolkien rolled his R's a lot, especially... Um, I think they're supposed to be mostly rolled in Elvish. Naur in Amen. Naur Dan in Garhoth. You should at least flip them if you can. Naur on, um, especially at the end of a word like that. Naur on, um, I mean, it's not Naur on, right? Naur on Edraith. Not Edraith, you know, not Edraith. You don't hit the R's like you're the lead singer for Ario Speedwagon. You know, you, you, you flip them, especially in Elvish. Edraith, Draith, Draith. Naur an Edraith Amen. Naur, Naur, and with the with the pause. So Naur an, Naur an. You kind of go straight from the R to the an, to the on, right? Naur an Edraith Amen. But then you when Naur dan with the D at the beginning, it gives you an excuse to really hit the rolled R. Right. Naur Dan in uh in Gaur Um Yeah, yeah. So anyway, um uh we'll talk about the translation. We'll get that but yeah, the the um the rhythm of it is lovely. Naur on a Dreithamen. Naur Dan in in Ian Gaurhoth. Um, here we have, it's all about the, I mean, there are repeated consonants, obviously, starting with the same words there, Naur and Naur. But, um, uh, but, um, you, um, I, I mean, I think, uh, it's, it's all about the vowels uh, in what, like, the, the sound shape of, uh, Gandalf's incantation here is all about the vowels. Um, our, you know, that A-U diphthong is the, the owl is, is the dominant sound, right? We get it at the beginning, naur, naur, and then ending with it again, naur in gaurhoth. So, um, and of course, in gaur, um, that's the word for wolf, in gaur, right? Um, so he says two words, naur, or it says one word twice, right? Naur, which is, which like rhymes with the word for wolf, Ngaur. Ngaurhoth uh, basically means the, the wolf horde, right? Um, uh, as I, if I'm recalling correctly, uh, my, uh, uh, my Elvish here. Um, but um, uh, yeah, exactly. Just like the name of Tulsirian. Um, Exactly, exactly. Um, but um, anyway, so I get to me, 
into my ears, his elvish words here are not about the consonants. Like we've been focused on the consonants with a little bit of, you know, um, some noting of vowels occasionally, but it's been mostly about the consonants in that English paragraph, right? But then when Gandalf speaks in Elvish, to me, it's all about, it's all about the vowels. Um, because almost every vowel that is not ow is ah, right? An, amen, don, um, you know, so it, 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 you've got like, you've got the three ows and then the three ahs as well. An, amen, don. Um, so there's a lot of, uh, internal, um, uh, internal rhymes going on there, right? Um, you can almost, you can almost scan it like meter, the way that the, um, the, 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 the assonance, the way that the, 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 the vowel sounds, um, in those carefully balanced, um, Elvish sentences are, are flowing, right? Um, Yes, yes, yeah, exactly. Samoth Naur is the that word Naur is the same, um, the same word. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Um, okay. Um, so I believe now, so, um, uh, <laughs> Odek teach. I, I'm really bad at pronouncing the NG, like the NGs and the, like all of his, like the nasalized things. I'm, I, I suck at that. Um, uh, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm not really gonna, uh, but it's not a syllable. The NG is not a separate syllable. So if you're reading Ngaurhoth as if it's three syllables, that's not right. Um, NG is a is a it's a consonantal combination. Um, so Ngaurhoth is a two syllable word. Um, um, yeah, it's just one sound. Uh, yeah, I know, Bjarnason, you're so patient about trying to explain to me how I should be. Bjarnason is a linguist, and uh, uh, he's so patient trying to explain to me how it should sound, and I'm still, I'm still bad at it. I just, uh, yeah. Um, um, uh, what is the Hill of Slain called? What the Hauv Ndingen? Yeah, man, like, I, yeah, I suck at that, too. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's, um, it's a, it's a, okay. So Bjarne Sander says it's like the NG in sing. So Ngaurhoth, Ngaurhoth. Um, so you just, it's, it's basically forget the N, right? Gaurhoth, right? It's just Gaurhoth. But then the N in front of it just makes it a ng, Ngaurhoth. Um, so it's, yeah, yeah. You swallow the N before the G. That's, that's exactly, um, it's like, except, except you should hit the G. I think you should hear the G. It's a, it's not a Ngaurhoth or something. Um, it's a, it's, I think you, you do get the Ngaurhoth. I, I believe it, you, you, you get the G there. Um, you shouldn't hear the G? No? Okay, see? 
like I said, I suck at this. Um, so <laughs> I'm, I, I, there are so many ways in which, as I've always said, I would be a deep disappointment to Tolkien. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, see, Abelard, I, that, I lean towards it because the G does sound eviler to me too. So, um, but anyway, yeah. And if I don't hit the G, I really, it, it's super awkward for me to pronounce without making it a new syllable, which I know it's not supposed to be. So anyway, it's, I'm learning. I'm trying, trying to get better, but it's, um, yeah, that, that stuff doesn't come natural to me. Um, but, um, anyway, uh, we'll do more with the Elvish next time. And, more, we'll actually talk about Gandalf's magic. Let's talk about the, there's so, several comparisons that people were wanting to talk about. People wanting to compare this to um, Gandalf in Bag End in chapter one, right? Really, really interesting comparison. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think that there's um, there's a lot here to think about lightning. Right, Gandalf's association with lightning, which is low key one of the primary things Gandalf is associated with. Actually, um, we see Gandalf associated with lightning as as much as we see him associated with anything else. Actually, um, uh, though that's not usually the thing that people now. The Rankin Bass folks caught that, right? Remember the, like, thunderclaps and lightning flashes that are surrounding Gandalf, like, at all times, you know, in the Rankin-Bass Hobbit, right? That's to, that's straight from the text, right? They picked up on that much more clearly than I think most readers pick up on the lightning um, that, um, that Gandalf is so frequently associated with. Anyway, all right. So we've teased the second slide here got through some interesting stuff we'll come back next time do more here talk about the magic talk more about the content less about the sound of uh of this marvelous paragraph um and then maybe segue into the marvelous paragraph that follows this um all right for now book discussion over for the evening it is field trip time again um We'll get closer, at least, to determining if they're spiritual wargs next time. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes, we should have class next week. Class next week should be on. As I, I'm, always, I'm always a little bit hesitant to predict the future with great confidence, but I plan to be home next Tuesday. Um, so we should be we should be okay there. Um, all right. Thanks, folks, uh, for joining us. Uh, those who are here just for the book talk, we will... Uh, head off into Swanfleet on our field trip here this evening. Good evening, Corey. You're stuck with me tonight. Yes, unfortunately, Valoria is unwell again today, so um, we're uh, we're gonna have to uh, figure it out here. Hang on. Okay. Um, sorry, coming back in. Be right there. Um, all right, one second. Of course, the, uh, yep. Sorry, I'm typing my password wrong. That's never good. Of course, the big oh, news. Fun, 
in Lotro today is the about the release of the new I love the image here of Umbar. Oh yeah. We're gonna have fun tomorrow. Um Scenario the World Builder is gonna show us the shield isles tomorrow. Nice. So yeah, we got the Corsairs of Umbar expansion. That's kind of, it's an mm. expansion officially, right? Yeah, it's a whole expansion. It launches on the first unless something weird happens. Cool. Cool. Um the first, first of November? Yep, first of November. Okay. And okay. for those who pre purchase, they can have access to the Mariner the day they make the purchase. Neat. Indeed. Yeah. Abelard's junk. Like you can go to Umbar. Exactly. And they're now really more fully launched. I mean, they were doing they've been doing fourth age content ever since Mordor, right? So um technically. But you know, it, it really feels like they're starting to move forward and explore stories of the fourth age more thoroughly than they have before, which is pretty fun. I think that's great. Yeah. To answer Emma Thorne's question, there's four regions. Um, there's outer, there's King's Gondor West, which is like the post-war version of like Dull Amroth out to Pilar gear and you know, thereabouts. And then there's outer Gondor, which is basically into the Anfalas, the shield okay. isles. And then Umbar, the city. Okay, hang on a second. I wanna, I wanna do that again with my map up. Um, Cal Elros, yeah, I wasn't gonna bring up the Mariners because I was thinking of you, but uh, sorry about that. Sorry, Cal Elros is a Seattle Mariners fan, and they just unfortunately did not make the playoffs. Which, I seriously, I know I don't want to like as a Red Sox fan. I'm not bitter. I was genuinely cheering for the. Uh, for the Mariners to make the playoffs. But um, anyway, yeah, sorry about that. Um, okay, so hang on. Uh, I want to look at the map. Looking at the map. I need to map. get the Mossword because I... Going down to map. Gondor. Okay, so... Uh, man, even looking at the whole map of Middle-earth is barely enough. So um, we're going to get the Anfala. So we're going to get out here past Dal Amroth. Does that mean that we're going to actually be able to take Boromir's route around the White Mountains and coming to Minas Tirith from the south, like he impractically suggested just a few yeah, passages ago? I don't know, but Penneth Gellin is part of what he showed off last week. Okay. So we're going to so get at least this far. part, whether we get all, whether we can go all the way around or not, we're going to get, we're going to get this, this mm -hmm. east, this Western part. Okay. So we're going to yeah. get the Enfalas. We're going to get what else down, um, like Tolfalas and down here by the Ethir Anduin. I did, don't know about the Tolfalas. Um, I do know the Shield Isles are off the coast of Umbar. So okay. if you go out of that map and go back into a regular map, uh, click to the stable master map that shows where all the stable routes go and, and okay, then you hang on. I always forget where that is. Um, just regular map. Just get out of the map you're in. Oh, right. Go just through stable it. master map. Yep. You can also get to it with uh, shift M in the interface. Ah, okay. There's So we're getting into all this empty space down here. Mm-hmm. So okay. it's, from my understanding, the shield aisles will be closer to uh, Umbar itself. Okay, uh, all right, so King's Gondor. Mm -hmm. I'm where is this? Uh, 
the square like blow up here of King's Gondor is from where? From inside, um, like the down. Right. Okay. I see. I see. It's down here. Right. Yeah, around so Pilar gear and stuff. Yes. So where the King's Gondor insect currently is, I think they're going to have to come up with a new version of the map that's going to yeah. move that somewhere because yeah. the shield aisles are like right under it. Okay. That little finger crooking down is apparently where Umbar is going to be. Down here? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Down here in Umbar. Well, that's going to be awesome. That'll be great fun. Okay. Yeah. I, there's already, we've already seen a couple of, you know, you, you see in the uh, the loading screen kind of the vibe they're going for. And they, they're yeah. talking about making it feel like it's Mediterranean and, you know, you know, coastal Middle East. And just from the little bits we've seen so far, it seems like, and of course these cosmetics they're giving us, this, this screams, um, you know, Middle Eastern. Yeah, cool. Cool. Also, I have a parrot on my shoulder because I'm awesome. <laughs> That's it. It exactly. gave us a parrot on the shoulder cosmetic. Very cool. Very cool. All right. So um, let us head. Where are we headed? Let's head. Let's get out of town. We were looking around the town last time. I want to search the. Whoa. It's a closed gate. Look at this. Why can't we get out this way? That's weird. Yeah, there's uh, there's only two ways out of town. Interesting. I, I'd never noticed that this exit was closed, and on the map it suggests this is the main way out of town. But we can't get out of this way. Oh, wait a second. Can we not get down to the western end of this way? Nope. It doesn't exist on the map yet. Western Enidwife is a different part. I yeah, it's see. like Mineria. Right. Okay. Right. So that's Mesopotamia, the Minhiriath, the between the two mm -hmm. rivers area. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So by Western Enidwife, they mean over here on the other bank of the river Guathlo. Right. So. That's why the gates are closed. Um. Selfs somewhere to go for future content if they so desire. Yes. Minaria's already teased as the possibility they're going to do Minaria at some point. Well, they put it on the map there, like, you know. Yeah. To and Western there was Enidwith. also the big other gate uh, in Cardalon saying, you know, here, you can't go through this Porcolis. Right, exactly. Yeah, so this part between, so the Minhiriath is the part between the two rivers, between the Branduin and the Guathlo. Um... Lots of old Numenorean history that can go in here. Mm -hmm. Okay. Interesting. All right. Well, obviously, I can't get out this way, so we'll get out another way. We can't get out. Yes, we cannot get out. Um, we can get out to the north. All right. So, we saw this ruin here from inside town. So my first goal for tonight, and probably my only goal for tonight, um, as I got carried away talking about assonance in the... Uh-huh, there answers. There's the immediate and obvious answer to the question. Mm -hmm. Whose place is this? 
Yes. It looked clearly like a late third age, like mid to late third age ruin. But it actually is Cardolan. So the people of Cardolan came across the river here and began to move even south here. What would this have been? Is this... Okay, so we get a decoration at ground level, which is kind of weird, but whatever. Um, does this look like a fortress tower kind of place? Do we think? Doesn't look recreational. There's not many windows. Yeah, but there doesn't seem to be any windows at all. It looks like there was a sort of curtain wall that came out of this. It might have enclosed some more, so... It this look looks a like bit more I'm seeing nothing sure. but grass. Um... Yeah. Huh. Huh. What's down around the other side? So the Howling Stones is what they call it. There's a lot of wolves. Yeah. Any, oh, okay, look, we can get in. Oh, yeah, no, it's a whole thing in here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Good and proper ruin it is. It is a proper ruin. So we've got... And a really a gigantic tree in the middle. Yeah. I'd say. Well, that wolf actually successfully gnawed my horse. I guess that's what happens when you stand there and don't do anything. Um, wow, you can actually go inside the tree. I don't remember ever going inside a tree before. I hear somebody has their sleigh bell equipped. Wait, what was that? I, I keep hearing little dings and whatnot, so it tells me... That Somebody probably has their sleigh bell equipped. It's a little oh, thing that the game gives you. It makes a little, just a little sound. I see. Um. Okay. So this this old tree is very interesting. I mean, this is clearly this tree was clearly here. A very when long this time. was built, yeah. I mean, it's it's a tree that looks like it was huge and died a long time ago. So, um, I'm assuming that this tree was actually placed in the middle of the courtyard. Um, Maybe like a Nimloth wannabe kind of deal. Yeah, something like that. Okay, with those rocks, so we've got a curtain wall across the rocks. We've got a gateway that doesn't seem to have much in the way of gates in it, but um, yeah, big, huge courtyard with a tree in the middle of it. This is this was a rather grandiose sort of building. Kind of keeps going. Huh. Look at these silver bark trees. I guess I'm going to have to get my cat out if these wolves keep attacking me. Well, it's because we've got lobies with us. Right, so they're aggroing. Mm -hmm. Okay, no worries. Okay, look at the bark pattern on these trees. And now let's go back to the big old dead tree. It really doesn't seem like the same kind of tree. That's what I'm wondering. Hang on, I'm going roundabout way here. You are. I don't know. I think it might be. I mean, it's bigger. 
Mm-hmm. Well, it's definitely moss-eaten. Yeah, it's all black now because it's all it's all dead and decaying. But I think it possibly might have been a huge, and that these trees out here are saplings from that old tree. Originally, that, they're that like makes these. Sense, these are scions of that older tree. So I'm thinking, therefore, that it was once a huge old white-ish tree, because these are white-ish trees. Right. They're mm-hmm. not the white tree, but they're whitish trees, and that these whitish trees are they're the offspring. They're basically copycatting. Yeah. I think they, they. But that's fascinating because that suggests that this place here. I mean, it makes it a place of some significance, you'd think. Um, makes sense that they. I mean, put a modern village nearby. Yeah, well, no, I I just mean from a Cardolingian perspective, right? Um, given how far we are now, south across the across the river, on the other side of Tharbad, um, and down into what we were seeing was sort of Gondorian territory, you know? Um, that, um, uh, I would have expected. I, I'm not shocked to find Cardolan, a Cardolan settlement down here, um, but I would have expected to be more of a like a remote outpost, right? But the the um, the placement of the huge old white tree in the middle of the courtyard suggests. I mean, that makes it seem sort of central, sort of important, doesn't it? It does. Or it might be them if they're like encroaching, it's like, you know, throwing down and saying, here's, yeah, we're, we're, we're coming in. Right. Or even if maybe, I mean, another theory could be that these were, this was um, a settlement that was made by people who were like I don't know, seceding from Cardolan might be too strong, but like a a branch of the people of Cardolan who wanted out of the Civil War and so crossed the river and said, we're going to set up a new peaceful, you know, uh, neo-Numenor, neo, you know, Minasanor here yeah, in the middle of... Enclave. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's what it makes me wonder. Well, now I'll be interested to see what other ruins we find around. That was, there was way more. When I saw that tower from town, I thought it might just be like some kind of watchtower, something sort of isolated. But um, this was way more than I expected. Um, We're running out of time because I didn't leave much time today. But let's, I'll just kind of finish the circuit of town here and see what else we can see just generally across the countryside. I'm not seeing anything up on the hills. I saw what looked like an orc camp or something way up there. There's mm-hmm. that, but is that actually in... I think I might be seeing Tharbad there over the hill. Okay, now there's one of those towers. I did want to look at one of those graced, what look like new towers that I suspect to have been built by the people of Mossward or whatever. Like from, you know, these... Not to be a Cardinal Tower at all. 
The white. There's a watchtower above Mossworth. Yeah, that's what I was looking at. Can we get up there? I don't believe so. I thought I saw another one, too. Let me just... Um, let's just Yeah, there ride. is one. There's one straight to the west. Okay, that's what I thought. Let's see uh, if we can uh, find that one. Let's just get the Mayan land here. Okay. I have to go all the way around. I won't explore any ruins. I just want to I sort of locate them. Hang on a second. So that is Tharbad there. Yes. Okay. So that's the... What I was seeing there was the northern edge of Tharbad. Okay. So... Can we circle around Mossward in this direction? Hey, looks kind of complicated, actually. Yeah, I'm trying to ride the borders, and uh, I'm shaking my fist and going, "Darn you, scenario!" Because I think he uh, he gave us impassable walls around Mossworth. Yeah, I'm not sure we can get there. This tower. It looks at least it looks natural rather than just abruptly. Like, oh, right. hey, here's the thing you can't pass. You can't see why. Right, you can't go here. Okay, now I'm just trying to figure out if that tower is part of Tharbat or not. As I'm thinking not. Well, yeah, it is kind of on the fringe. Yeah. Uh, come on, surely we can... Oh, come on. For real? Oh, yeah. That's mm. not right. I, I was just talking about how they're normally so cool about not making us you know, face invisible walls at places we should be able to crawl up. Okay, yeah, yeah. that's just an invisible wall. Okay, well, yeah. fine. Gosh, um, I, I'm going to say words to some, no, I'm not actually. I'll, <laughs> all I'll right, but that make is. I'll comment in the show tomorrow. Okay, so this <laughs> is definitely the. Um, that is definitely the edge of Tharbad there. Okay, yep. fine. Fine. All right. Well, fine. All right, I'm going to give up rather than crossing back through the wilderness again where there was nothing. Okay, so it looks like we get very nothing or very little anyway in the way of ruins here between Mossward and Tharbad south of the road. Um, right, the Howling Stones were on the other side. So next time we'll start in Mossward, we'll head up towards the road and we'll look along the Wade Water up here and then head over to the east to see what other things we can find as far as other ruins. And if we can get closer to one of those watchtowers, we'll uh, we'll do it. But yeah, all right. The glimpse of the watchtower that I had kind of remind me of the watchtowers and in buildings in um, Dunland, of all places. I was thinking the same thing of, mm -hmm. especially in that. What was that town by the, by the lake where we got ambushed eventually um, by Lou Brennan and with the Falcon Clan? I'm forgetting the name of the town. Tar Morva. Yeah, that area is what those towers were. One where we did the quest too. for them and. They turned our own traps against us. and yeah. Exactly, yeah. But yeah, we never yeah. learned that lesson. See also uh, War Critiques. 
No, exactly. Yeah, no, you don't generally learn that that sort of lesson. Um, okay, okay, cool. Um, awesome, very neat. Okay, cool. So um, we'll we'll check that out next time. See what we can see there mo more clearly, and continue our exploration of Swanfleet. Thanks everybody for joining us today. Um, fun little discovery there of the former white t white uh, tree in the middle of that uh, old. Cardolan outpost and we'll see what more we find thanks everybody um, fun discussion fun field trip tonight and I'll see you guys next week bye now